Heavenly Father, we ask your forgiveness for our ungrateful hearts. The times when you've been so faithful and caring and loving. And Lord, how you've provided in so many ways for us. So Lord, as we begin our time together tonight, we pause to give you praise and glory for what you deserve. Lord, we, we thank you for the very help you've given us that's allowed us to get in this room. The abilities, the even the means to get here, Lord, from the vehicles and the different ways you have provided. Lord, we thank you for this church. And we thank you for a nation that allows us to come and gather and read the Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word tonight, that we don't gather as a group of people looking for some sort of truth inside of us, but we gather as a people who can look to your Word and learn from it. God, we thank you for the Spirit that opened, that I, that opened our eyes, your Spirit that has allowed us to see and understand the Word. We thank you for Christ who, because of His sacrifice, we now can come with boldness to you, even though we are sinners before a holy God. We don't approach you in any way fearful of your wrath, but now we know because of Christ we approach you with boldness. And God, we think back through our day today, and we thank you for all the blessings and things you have done for us in our life. And so, Lord, now as we take these moments in your word, as we look towards the atonement that Christ has paid for us, Lord, may, may it create a gratitude in our heart for just how great of a gospel we have. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight, as we focus on the work of Christ, what we want to speak in particular about as it says there, the work of the Son of God. I may be able to touch on the resurrection, ascension, and the exaltation of Christ for a minute, but most of what I want to speak about is what Christ's work was while he was here on earth. What, what did he, when we say work, we mean what did he accomplish? Like, we can speak about who he is, but in particular, Christ came to earth to accomplish something. So what is it that Christ coming to earth actually did? And the word is atonement. Notice there the summary here is the atonement is the death of the incarnate son son on the cross and what it accomplished. Now, as in all these things we are studying doctrinal truths. So what I'm going to try to do tonight, as best I can, is, is dive into this topic and connect it to practical ways in which you see this played out. Because this really does connect to real life things that happen in church today. You just may not always see it. In fact, I was talking to the pastor today. We were talking through it. He's teaching at North tonight. And I was speaking to him about the importance of what I'm going to walk through, in particular, how we believe the atonement works. And I said, you know what, as I grew up, and even, even on into 
probably I got to seminary, I, I didn't understand just how crucial this doctrine was. And even oftentimes I would hear people and how they maybe presented the gospel or presented Jesus and in fact miss the atonement. They would miss how it works. And so as I, as I put this forth tonight, I, I want to say it in a manner to say that, that on the surface, it's going to sound a little bit like, oh yeah, that's just the gospel, I've heard it. But I want to press it a little further so you can begin to hear maybe some of the differences. So let me speak first about the atonement. Most of us know the thing about atoning in the Old Testament. You know, I've asked people over the years, uh, how are people saved in the Old Testament? And usually people are drawn to the sacrificial system. They'll say they're saved by the sacrifices at the temple. Well, they're not. What the sacrifices are, and this I thought was a good term that the book had for it, they are a provisional atonement. Provisional atonement. In other words, they don't, they're not complete. They don't pay for your sins. They are a provisional atonement until Christ could come, and as Hebrews said, would be the full and final atonement for your sins. They're a picture of what is to come. So even if you look to the Old Testament, it's not, because if people could come and offer up enough bulls and rams and goats to pay for their own sins, they could do enough good things. Ultimately, it would not be their own activity. It would be Christ paying for their sins. See, people are saved by faith in Christ no matter when they live, before Christ or after, they just placed their faith in a sacrificial lamb. They knew an atonement had to be made for their sin. So in the Old Covenant, you think of Christ, looking towards Christ, it was a provisional atonement. And now in the New Covenant, Jesus accomplishes this forever. So let's look at some major affirmations. And in fact, let's talk about the nature of the atonement. What is the nature? What is it? So here comes uh, maybe a, a large phrase. Maybe you've heard it before. The pastor's mentioned it. And in fact, um, I hit one of the key verses when I preached on this just two weeks ago. Um, and we'll get to it in a moment. But, but here's the phrase. I think I have it written. I don't know if I have it written on your paper or not. But it is the penal substitutionary atonement. That's what we call it. P-E-N-A-L, like law, penalty substitutionary atonement is what we're talking about. I'm going to talk about some other theories in a moment, but this would be the one that we hold to. This is how we understand atonement. And in fact, this will be at the core of how we understand the gospel. So let me speak a little bit about the Bible's support and when it describes the atonement. Let me give you a verse here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I just preached on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 two weeks ago, a week ago Sunday. And verse 21, the last one, I hit it at the very end, didn't spend terribly long on it, but it speaks of this idea of the penal substitutionary atonement. In particular, you can see the substitutionary element. Listen to it. It says, for our sake. So when it speaks about this idea of atonement, it is done for us. That's a part of it. It is for our sake, for us, he made him to be sin, this is Christ, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see the substitutionary element there, right? So he became sin so that, so that we might become the righteousness. So it's a, it's a trading, it's a substituting. He, he stood in our 
place. Ephesians 5, 2 hits this as well. It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And then the phrase, it says, he gave himself up. And again, this is what I'm drawing out here. For us. He did it for us. And then look what it describes. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You understand the atonement is not just for us. It is also a sacrifice. He is our sacrificial lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 describes him as the Passover lamb. He's the one sacrificing for us. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 9, he'll give you two verses here, I won't read them. Hebrews 9, 26 and Hebrews 10, 12 describes him as the once and for all sacrifice for us. So to describe the atonement, I want to give you a few words. I'm just going to walk through these and they'll kind of expound what I mean by the penal substitutionary atonement. What are the elements that come from it? Here's the first word, holiness. Meaning that God's holiness sets the bar from the very beginning. That's why when we talk about sharing the gospel, we say God, man, Christ response. And we start with God is holy. Part of the whole idea of our salvation is based from the fact that God is perfect and holy. And, and so at the very beginning, a, the atonement will be based out of God's holiness. The second word I'll give you is sin, meaning that from God's holiness, our sin now separates us from that holiness. Again, I understand, probably sitting there thinking, yeah, this is the gospel, right? It's real plain. Here's what's sad about this, and I'll just jump off this for a second. Uh, how often you can hear preaching and messages without some of this stuff. So, so this is what my point, you say, well, it's plain, it's, it's holiness, it's sin, but how often people can share the gospel without this, I don't know. Here's the third word, penalty. So not only do you have a holy God, not only do you have a sinful man, but because they're separated, now has been laid a penalty on them. Meaning that the atonement requires a payment for this penalty. Here's a fourth word, and this one's a bit odd. It's the word objective. And here's what I mean by this. It actually did something. Sometimes people talk about Jesus came to earth and he was like a good example. It's not just there to encourage you. Do you understand? When Jesus died on the cross, it's not just an inspiration for all people. He's just not a great example. When he died on the cross, it actually did something. It actually paid a penalty. It was a real thing. It's, a, it's like it, some people might think I'm paying, you could try to pay somebody with monopoly money. Well, it's not real money. Right? It's real money. It's a real payment for our sin. There really was a deficit with God. We're not just talking about just myths or some sort of idea. We really believe that there is a holy God that requires payment. Here's another word for you, and this is a phrase. It was paid in full. Meaning that Jesus' death wasn't just a half payment. It was a full payment for you. Another phrase, man cannot pay it. 
Here's what's fascinating about the atonement. When we have separated from God and we are sinful, we cannot pay that. And if we attempt to, we won't make it. So it requires God to pay it. Only God can pay it. Here's another one. Jesus, the God-man, Jesus paid that penalty for us. And then one last phrase. It is the only way. Meaning that there are not multiple other ways to pay this wrath and appease God. Let's say this one worked. Well, maybe Muhammad or Buddha or somebody else has done this. No, this is the only way by which to be reconciled to God. Okay, so... So there's the um, picture of the gospel played out in sinning and wrath and separation from God. So I, I, I guess I'll stop at this point because I really want to try to connect it for you. I was going to save a little bit of this for the end, but I'll do it here just to connect it. I want you to think through times in which you've heard a, a sermon or you've heard somebody get up, and I want you to think through how the person shared the gospel. And and I've heard it different ways over the years, but I started listening to when somebody would talk about how to become a Christian and how they might describe Jesus. They might get up and say, Jesus can change your life. Today, you need to give Jesus your life. Today, you need to surrender and turn your life over to Jesus. And if you'll do that today, He'll save you. Well, well, at the core level, did I get down to the fact that you have offended a holy God? I've just said, Jesus can redeem your life. He can maybe make it better. You can just take Jesus on. I've not dealt with any of your sin. I've not dealt with the fact you've offended a holy God. And in fact, when I say he saves you, do you really understand what he saved you from? So my point is just to say, do people really understand the the core of the atonement? And in fact, oftentimes I'll hear gospel presentations where it's pulled away from. Okay, let me give you some words that, it says five perspectives on the atonement. Five perspectives on the atonement. Each one of these, um, in particular speak about how the atonement works. Some of these words you'll recognize. The first one is propitiation. Propitiation. The meaning of the term is to appease the wrath of God. Meaning that when you sinned, the wrath of God is now on you and Christ stepped in your stead and substituted and appeased that wrath of God. This word propitiation actually is a, it's a, it's a biblical term. Romans chapter 3 verse 25, 1 John 4.10, both use this phrase. He uses this word. Uh, we're not making up a theological term here to define something for you. This is actually a term that's in the Bible to say that God's wrath is placed on them and, and it is then satisfied. In other words, his wrath has to go somewhere. Romans says, as people are sinning, it's, it's storing up wrath. And so it, it's going to go somewhere 
Will it land on Christ or on you? And so that's the idea of propitiation, and that's uh, a piece of atonement. Let me give you another word that describes the atonement. It's expiation. And expiation is the idea of cleansing from sin. Like you have been made clean. Jesus cleanses you. So, is that true? Jesus cleanses you? Absolutely it's true, right? I'm not trying to hear tell you, tell you say Jesus doesn't cleanse a person, right? Whiter than snow. But the problem is not just that you are dirty and need to be clean. The problem is that you have offended a holy God with sin. So, to put this together and say, some people will make the atonement just expiation and not propitiation. But in a sense, they'll just say, you are a person who need to be cleaned up and you need Jesus to cleanse you today. All true, but again, an incomplete. And in fact, at this point, uh, the gravity of sin is, is somewhat lost. So again, expiation is another... Another idea from the Bible. Here's a, here's a third term, redemption. Redemption. The, this is uh, the picture of being enslaved or captive to sin and the devil and the world, and you, the, the Lord comes and redeems you, takes you out of the slavery to the world and brings you in. In fact, uh, the pastor just had a sermon about a month ago where he brought out this picture of slavery and the Lord redeeming us. And this is the picture here of, of the gospel being redeemed by the Lord. Here's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, and here's the phrase, as a ransom for many. This is his, him ransoming to redeem us. We have been bought from our enslavement in the world. We have been redeemed. Well, very, very true biblical picture. But these are, think of each of these like a facet of the atonement. Propitiation, expiation, redemption. Each of these plays a part of the picture of the gospel. In fact, we'll come back to redemption in a moment. The fourth one here is reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, describes this with Jesus. He says, and through him to reconcile, talking about Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The reconciliation and the word peace tied together here. The fact that you were unreconciled, you were enemies to each other. Think about being unreconciled with somebody, right? There, you're not talking, you're enemies, you're apart from each other. And then when Christ reconciles you, he makes peace between you. And in fact, it's, it's, not that, it's not like the Lord just says, I forgive you, stay out in the cold. He says, I forgive you, come in and sit at my table. We are now reconciled together. We now have a relationship. 
And so for him, it is, it's, it's this idea of reconciliation. There's a fifth one. It's cosmic victory. And this is the last one on this list. So, so in cosmic, cosmic victory, what we're talking about here is that when Christ atoned for your sins and all, it wasn't just a personal thing, it was a, it was a kind of a universal thing. He, he won, he's, he was victorious over death. He conquered the powers of the world. He defeated Satan in the moment. It, it was this victorious moment when he substituted himself in our place to pay for our sins. Cosmic victory. Now the error comes when people diminish the atonement to any one particular facet that I just gave. Usually people give up the propitiation portion. I'll talk in a minute about that. People want to drop that one first. But let me dive into something I may regret. So if you've been bored up to this point, you can just watch me work my way through this next question. So one of probably the most challenging portions of this doctrine is what we refer to as the extent of the atonement. And um, what we mean by that is the idea of how far the atonement goes. In fact, there's a fair bit of debate. We could probably, I'm sure of this, we could find godly believers in our church that will hold different views to the extent by which it goes. Let me draw it out for you without trying to create a bit of an issue here. But the debate in how, in how far it goes is some people would refer to it as a limited atonement. In other words, that when he atoned and he died on the cross, his sin only was, when he died on the cross, his sacrifice was only for those who, would, those who believed. For only the sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I die for, you know, I give my life for my sheep, would be the verse you might use. To say, his sacrifice was only for those who would believe. So it's a limited atonement in that regard. Some would broaden it up because you read a, a, a verse like uh, 1 John chapter 2. Verse 2, we actually studied this. When we studied 1 John, it says, you know, for, for he died for the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. There's this sense of this idea his atonement was for the world. Even 2 Peter 3.9, it says he desires everyone to be saved. So at what point is the atonement limited? Uh, in fact, there's even in the book has a, uh, an attempt at a hybrid position between the two. So how do we deal with this? And let me, maybe you say, I, I haven't quite got you yet. Here's what I'm saying. Is that, did Jesus die for everybody in the world? And did it only get an, applied to a few? Or did Jesus' death only, did he only die for those who would be saved? The elect. That's the debate. Now, Within Christian circles and within our church, there are people that would hold both positions. What I would like to offer tonight are two guardrails to put on either side of it. Things I think would hold us between those two. Let me offer the first one. We do believe the atonement is limited in some way. 
Here's what I mean. We are not universalists. We don't believe every single person goes to heaven. I don't believe when Jesus died on the cross that it was applied to every single person. We believe that when the atonement happened, whether it is applied to those people or not, we don't believe that everybody goes to heaven from it. So we all would agree that the atonement is somehow limited. It's not for everyone. So that's one side. We would hold up and say, if you want to cross over that, that is unbiblical and ungodly. Then I would put on the other side of guardrail to say that we don't believe in determinism. What I mean by that is that we don't believe man is a robot and everything is already determined for him. In other words, we don't act as if just because, let, let's say that Jesus only died for this select group, and we just say, well, what's the point then? That that's already, group's already picked. He knew beforehand they were the elect, so why even bother with evangelism? That would be the far other end of it. But we don't believe that. We're not people that believe that just because there's a select group, we're not going to do evangelism. On that far end, we believe that man still will make a choice. The Bible calls for man to make a choice with God. So on either end, we know with these two guardrails that there is some limit to Jesus' atonement. We also know that man responds to what God has done. Now there's dangers in here. I don't want to say, well, Jesus just died on a cross and laid it out there, and then it's up to man to have his choice of God. Well, Jesus is the one who saves, right? He's the one who opens eyes. So we've got to be a little bit careful to start saying, well, it's just all up to man to figure this out. Because God's the one who initiates. So here's how I would deal with it, or as best I'm able to work it out. There's a, there's a man by the name of J.I. Packer, and he uses a term called antinomy. And what he says, when, when you use the term, it describes a contradiction between two beliefs that's apparent, but not actually there. It's, a, it's still a reasonable idea. I'd say one of these in our faith would be the Trinity. I understand that there's three persons in God, and there's one God, and if you make me try to completely explain that, we're going to fall short, right? Because his ways are higher than my ways, and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, right? So in the same regard here, I do understand that how God works in salvation is somewhat of a mystery. I'm not exactly sure how these two work. But I will say that God is the one who saves, and man must respond to God's call. That's clear as I can get in Scripture. And how limited it is, we really don't know. We can take some of the scriptures. In fact, we've got, I think there's some clear scriptures kind of on both sides. And so I would, I would, if somebody leans one way or the other in the middle of that, fine with me. I think they can be godly in the middle. I just think don't give up sharing the gospel. And on the other end of it, uh, don't start saying that you're the one making the choice for God. Because God is the one who still will be the one that opens your eyes and saves you. So anyway, there's just my thoughts on it. Uh, I do understand this is a controversial conversation a little bit. And if you've never thought much about it, sometimes if, you, if you've never actually asked this question and looked at scriptures, and you see words where it describes us as elect, 
And it uses, you know, the word predestined, we don't even, it's in the Bible. So there's words like that that can be a bit hard to think on. So all that to say, there's my thoughts on how limited the atonement is. Let's talk about a few theories of the atonement. I'll try to walk through these and make them as, try to connect them for you. Um, some people believe when they look at the Bible, it, what they call the recapitulation theory. They'll say Jesus was the second Adam, and when he came down, all he did was reverse the sinful direction of humanity. He didn't actually appease the wrath of God or pay for anything. They'll say all he did was reverse the sinful direction of humanity. Here's a second one, and this one probably uh, will be more connecting. The second one is, to, is a ransom to Satan, meaning that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan for us. In fact, um, I was reading today, uh, the pastor and I were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. And this idea of the ransom picture of the gospel was actually, I actually went and read on their website. They had a long description that was hard to read through, but it was big on the idea of just the ransom piece. That it was just that, that Jesus came to ransom us. But that was the only element that was there. So it was, a, it was kind of a one-dimensional and in fact, some people believe the ransom was paid to Satan for us. Jesus was the payment for the ransom. But the ransom wasn't paid to Satan. Who was it paid to? God, right? Because God is the one whose wrath must be appeased. And so the picture here is of a ransom to God. All right, third one is, um, called it a satisfaction theory, meaning that sin robs God of his honor and Christ satisfied this honor. Here's a fourth one. It's called the moral influence theory. In fact, this one's probably more true than you might think. People believe Jesus, we all have a little bit of love in us, and we just need Jesus to come and inspire us to, to love more. In fact, that's probably what a lot of people do with Jesus, right? And I can say a lot of really nice Really good things about Jesus inspiring a lot of people. But at the core, is that the gospel? It's not. So again, the moral influence theory. Fifth one here. Uh, and this is probably the most famous one of that come up against. It's called Christus Victor. Christ, Christus, Christ us is actually how it's spelled. Christus and then Victor, like you would expect. But it, it rejects the idea of the legal part of the atonement. In other words, it, the idea that we were somehow indebted to God and in the courtroom we had to have our, our sentence paid for. It says that in that moment it puts God and Jesus opposed to each other and they don't want to think of God that way. And so it just says that all Christ did is to come and to conquer sin. So again... That's a, that sounds really good, right? If I just talk about how Jesus came and to conquer and he's triumphant and now he rules and he reigns and he, he came down to rule in this world. I, again, that's, that's only a portion of it. And that's actually a, a pretty significant theory because people don't want to know that God has a wrath towards sin. That's what people avoid. So let me hit something here. 
a couple of points, and then um, I'll get close to wrapping this up. The, the first one is, this is why we uh, use God, man, Christ response as a way to share the gospel. Because in particular, it allows us to make sure that in the gospel presentation, we speak about the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. That there was a holy God, man sinned against a holy God, and then that separated him from that holy God, and then therefore Christ paid for, took on the wrath of God, and then you must respond in repentance and faith. You know, I think a lot of times, the reason you don't hear the word repentance in a gospel presentation is because sin was never mentioned because it was never about being offending in a holy God. It was always about, well, you and, you and God's relationship is broken. True. And Jesus came to bring your relationship back together. True. But ultimately, is that the full gospel? And, and this what I'm pressing on this so you'll understand the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. As I was thinking about this day, I was thinking about places where churches have rejected this idea. And probably the most famous in the past few years is um, in a more liberal strain of the Presbyterian church, they were examining their hymnal. So they were looking through their hymnal, they were looking at the songs that they were singing, they came upon a song that many of us know and love, in fact, it is my favorite song, uh, favorite hymn we sing or song we sing. It's the song In Christ Alone. Am familiar with In Christ Alone? We sing it here fairly often. Well, as they came on that song, they decided they didn't like one of the lines. And in particular, it had to do with this very topic. So I went and pulled the article today. I'll read you a little bit of what it says. It says, the original lyrics... Say, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Okay, now, in this moment, I just, I know I've talked a long time about this, but do you now see right in the middle of that song, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ found in the words? And, and to pause on this moment with lyrics, well, I'll finish what it says. It says, the, the Presbyterian Committee on the Song wanted to substitute the words, um, on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, that's a true statement, right? I, there's nothing wrong with what they substituted. The problem is what they didn't want in there, right? Th they were rejecting this part of the gospel. And um, I was somewhere a few months back. It was a, a conference thing. And they had a couple different worship bands up. And I listened to probably, it was like a four or five song set. You know, you're singing different worship songs. And man, what was fascinating is I listened to like four or five songs and we never sang the gospel. Like, as I, as I listened through, I thought just how many different denominations and people that have all kinds of different beliefs about the gospel in Christ could have sang every song we just sang. They could have, I mean, 
Jesus, we love you. We glorify God. I mean, just all these statements you would do. And I agreed with all of them. The problem was is that they could have been in a whole variety. In fact, if you're a Christian artist today, you probably don't want to put a lot of theology because you won't sell quite as many songs. So one of the things that I, I want to just kind of conclude with or to draw out or maybe help you to appreciate if you don't already is on a Sunday here with the song selection that, that John does and what we sing, in that moment when I was singing those five songs, it was, a, it was an eye-opening. I, I know what we sing on a Sunday. I know why we sing it. But in that moment, I thought, my goodness, people can get saved every single Sunday and we don't even have to get to the sermon. They, can, they sing it. You know, and even I was doing that... Um, Somebody was asking me when I was preaching a couple weeks ago and I was talking about 2 Corinthians 5 and I just quoted, I said, it's got that verse 21. I said, he became sin. Uh, and then immediately, who knew us? Everybody starts singing, y'all got it going in your head right now, don't you? But somebody, this church member was quoting, the song, quoting scripture back to me, not because he had memorized the verse. Maybe he had, I don't know. I don't want to claim that about him. But it was because the song had been implanted in him. And so, um, one, I hope that you appreciate the depth of the gospel that we sing. Um, and th this is just something to start noticing. Oftentimes when people go to another church or they'll hear another preacher and they'll listen to the sermon and they'll go, well, he said nice things about Jesus. I don't see what the difference is. If you start to pay attention to the people that actually share a clear gospel about a holy God who's been separated uh, because of a sinful man and that they need Christ to now pay the wrath of God and be reconciled and repent and believe in him. You, you start hearing that, you'd be surprised how few times you'll hear that elsewhere. Some people have told me, they said, I go, uh, in fact, is, it was um, somebody who'd left our church and gone to a different town and they started visiting Baptist churches in the town and they were really disheartened because of how many churches they could go to and never hear the gospel. And so, I draw this whole thing out tonight just to say, I'm thankful that, at least in my heart, maybe you found this fascinating, but there's parts of this that maybe, oh yeah, we hear that all the time. Uh, I'm thankful to be at a church where we feel that way. Uh, because there's a lot of places where there's not a clear gospel to be sung or to be preached as we do it. So let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, as we conclude our time, Lord, we just want to take a moment and remember what you saved us from. To understand that each one of us in this room is a sinful person, stood separated from you, enemies with you, facing your wrath. And Lord, we could not, no matter how good of a person we think we are in this room, there is no way we would ever be able to reconcile ourselves to you. 
So Lord, today we, we thank You for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And how, Lord, we don't have to be good enough for You. Lord, in fact, sinful is what's required on our part. And Lord, You have saved us from that. Lord, we thank You for Your love because Your Word says You did it for us. For our sake, You became sin. And we thank You for this great and glorious hope of the Gospel. Lord, give us boldness to speak it to others. Lord, give us eyes to see false Gospels that are around us. And Lord, give us wisdom at how to speak the true Gospel to those who are around. And Lord, we ask as we do that, that those that are lost around us would have their eyes opened and they might be saved because of the power of the Gospel. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.